Approximately 2,400 years ago, Socrates was put on trial for corruption and impiety. The charges were false, but no matter. Socrates was found guilty and sentenced to death. The penalty for his crimes was death by hemlock, but Socrates was given an opportunity to suggest an alternative penalty. He argued that because the penalty should be deserved, and because he spent his life offering free services to the city, he deserved free meals for the rest of his life. After his conviction, Socrates stated that he might have won his case if he appealed to the judge's emotions. In other words, if he had practiced sophistry. But he chose to speak truth. Specifically, he chose parahesia, to speak truth in the face of danger, or in his case, death. And he was subsequently put to death. Jump to Pakistan in 1997. The year Malala was born. Malala's father was a teacher and ran a school for girls in her village. A few years later, the Taliban took control of Swat Valley and her life changed radically. Among the draconian changes, like banning music and television in, in 2008, at the age of 11, the Taliban forbid Malala to go to school. In 2012, she began speaking out publicly about the rights of girls to learn and to attend school. In October of 2012, a masked gunman boarded her bus and asked, who is Malala? And then he shot her in the head. She survived, underwent months of surgeries, and now she lives here in the UK. She's an outspoken advocate for girls' education. Malala co-authored the memoir entitled, I Am Malala, the story of a girl who stood up for education and was shot by the Taliban, which was accurately described as fearless. Malala is the living embodiment of parahesia, speaking boldly in the face of danger. Socrates and Malala are stark ideal examples of parahesia, but there are also everyday examples. Here's just one. Israel Morales is the owner of a restaurant where I live in Kachka, Portland. Kachka, by the way, is Belarusian and Ukrainian for the word duck, in case anybody was wondering. In 2018, a customer was eating at Kachka, I don't speak Belarusian, and wearing a t-shirt with the words Luftwaffe, which means Air Force in German. Another customer, Devon Snoke, was dining at a nearby table when she noticed the shirt, thought it had Nazi imagery, and complained to the owner, Israel Morales. Incidentally, the owners of the restaurant are, are of Mexican and Jewish, Jewish, Jewish heritage. In response to Snoke's complaint, Morales said, freedom of speech. And, according to journalist Katie Herzog, he seemed unconcerned. Herzog wrote, Snoke later posted her experience on Facebook. I was asked to leave Kachka tonight for calling this Nazi out, Snoke wrote, including the photo of a man in the shirt. Remember his face. Remember the symbolism on his shirt. Yell as loud as you can. The post was shared over 500 times, and people began flooding the restaurant's Facebook page with one-star reviews, including this gem. I often try new cuisine in the Portland area. 
I can assure you, I'll never set foot in the establishment that defends Nazi paraphernalia and decides to throw out a patron that calls attention to it. Terrible for business. I hope this spreads like wildfire. No safe spaces for Nazis in the PNW. PNW is Pacific Northwest. Israel Morales did not apologize, and he called out inaccurate and libelous comments on social media. The example of Socrates and Walala involved death, and Israel Morales involved potential destruction of his livelihood. These examples demonstrate an ancient virtue called parahesia, of which speaking truth in the face of danger, of which I spoke in my talk earlier today. Parahesia is speaking without obfuscation or concealment. It's being clear, direct, and sincere. Socrates and Malala called out bad ideas, and they responded when they were called out. They risked death. They were forthright in their speech, and they didn't bow to thugs and bullies. And they paid a price. Malala was shot in the head and barely survived. Socrates, Socrates was imprisoned, sentenced to death, and killed by the state. He could have apologized, but did not. Socrates could have also escaped, but did not. For Socrates, not being forthright and not speaking truth was a type of complicity. It was a collaboration with injustice. Parahesia is the refusal to collaborate with injustice, and it can be deadly. Parahesia is kryptonite to social justice ideology. And parahesia is indispensable for the road ahead. Social justice adherents and all others who traffic in sophistry rely upon your silence. They will bully you. They will call you names. They will intimidate you, and they will attempt to smear you. There is an army of social justice fanatics, most of whom are either hiding behind keyboards or holding academic positions. They will try to silence and prevent discourse. Parahesia is their greatest fear. Today, we are building an army. Our army believes in free speech, cognitive liberty, challenging each other's ideas in good faith. We value open discourse and intellectual diversity. In our army, one's conclusions, whether you're for or against Brexit or immigration or abortion or a carbon tax, are irrelevant. What is relevant is whether or not you're willing to engage dialogue and openly discuss and defend your ideas. Our army has a code of conduct. There are rules of engagement. We don't inflict violence on people with whom we disagree or throw milkshakes on them or shout them down. We civilly engage and challenge people's thoughts and ideas, even and perhaps especially those in our own army. And if their conclusions and the methods that got them there are correct, then we revise our beliefs. We are building an army that understands the importance of discussion, civil disagreement, and belief revision. This is very, very different from the social justice army. Their army is univocal. They demand agreement and conformity to their tenants and broker no dissent and they silence the, those they perceive as heretics and blasphemers. There are no heretics and no blasphemers in our army. We engage the rules of civil disagreement. No matter how much we bitterly disagree with someone's conclusions, they are never tossed out 
But we can't just run into this war unequipped. We need the tools to have difficult conversations across seemingly unbridgeable divides. There are specific techniques and strategies that allow parahesia to flourish. And many of these techniques take place in dialogues over what seem to be unbridgeable gaps. In fact, two people are here today. They've flown in from the United States, Anthony Magnabosco and Reed Nicewonder. They have impossible conversations with strangers about highly contentious topics. And they are experts in having civil discussions across political, moral, and religious chasms. Anthony and Reed give the exhausted majority the tools to elevate their voices. One of the most striking features after their conversations is how incredibly grateful people are for having spoken to them and having had an opportunity to be honest with them and be forthright in their speech. There are many tools and strategies for combating social justice ideology. In this talk, I'll focus just on a few that relate to parahesia and conversation more broadly. How do we speak truth in the face of danger during seemingly impossible conversations? And what principles, strategies, and techniques should we use? The approaches I'll now discuss come from our book with James Lindsay, How to Have Impossible Conversations. It details 36 techniques to help people have just that, conversations that they think are not possible against deep, deep gulfs, political, religious, metaphysical, etc. I'll cover 10 techniques that lay the groundwork for parahesia, and you can immediately use these to have better conversations. Okay, let's do it. One thing you can do immediately is you can start by listening. It is vital, to, so at the end of this, my goal is that every single person walks out of here and has a very good understanding of how to immediately begin to improve their conversation. You should be able to use the stuff immediately. You start by listening. Every single body of literature is the same that talks about this. Sales, marketing, persuasion, anything. You have to understand what someone's talking about. The best way to understand what someone's talking about is to genuinely listen to them. Here are three specific techniques that can help you listen to them. Have you ever gone to a situation, I'm sure every single person in this room has, where you go to the door with someone at the same time? Don't rush through the door. Step Physically step back and motion the person with your arm to go through the door. We call this in the book, go, no, you go. So if you speak at the same time with somebody else, you say, go ahead. Don't rush in to fill that gap. Go ahead. The second thing, and I use this in my classrooms all the time, and I use this when I taught in prisons, it's very, very effective. You place the burden of understanding on yourself. So if you're in a conversation and you're having a conversation with someone, say, I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure I understand. Can you explain that? As opposed to, that's unclear, which is not necessarily bad, but you're unclear is bad. So you want to always place the burden of understanding yourself. I'm not sure I understand that. Can you explain that to me? The third thing you can do to immediately improve listening, and remember, you cannot intervene in someone's cognitions. You cannot give them the gift of doubt unless you understand their position and what you're attempting to instill doubt within. <coughs> this is from the literature on hostage negotiations and cult exiting. Say, I hear you. It's an incredibly powerful technique. I hear you. It's so simple, but you have to mean it. 
So you're having a conversation with someone, you can just say, I hear you. You can also use minimal encouragers, which is you take the, this again from hostage negotiation. You take something somebody said, oh, I had a bad day at work today or something, something. Oh, at work. That one simple thing lets somebody know that you're listening to them. Often I found that when I have these conversations with people, many people just want to be listened to. They just want to know that someone's listening to them. And so you, you have to develop the facility and the skills to let people know you're listening. And there are three. Go, know, you go. Place the burden of understanding on yourself and say, I hear you. Okay, the next thing you can do to immediately improve your conversation is use Rappaport's rules. Today I'll just talk about the first Rappaport's first rule. Anatole Rappaport was a Ukrainian-born American mathematical psychologist. Okay, Dan Dennett states, Dan Dennett is an American philosopher from Tufts. He states it as follows. You should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I thought of putting it that way. There is no criticism. There is nothing until you can restate something back to somebody. And the goal, again, from hostage negotiations is to get, I hear you. You get that. No, no, that, sorry, that was my other one. That's right. Someone says, that's right. You've nailed it. That, that signals to you that you've understood what they're talking about. So someone says something, you're in a conversation, you want to really listen to them. You want to attempt to restate back to them what they've said to you. But you want to do it in such a way that you get specifically the two words, that's right. That lets you know that you've understood exactly what it is they're talking about. There's no criticism. There's nothing until that's the, that's the case. If you notice on Twitter, it's almost opposite land. It's always misconstrue what someone says, then attack them savagely. Okay. Next thing, it's the only big word you need today. Epistemology. How you know what you know. The problem in most conversations is that people look at each other's conclusions and not their epistemology. How you know what you know. They don't look to how they got there, they look to conclusions. So we see this conclusion, this conclusion, all of these conclusions in combat with each other, as opposed to thinking about, geez, how does somebody know that? And if someone knows something you don't know, you should want to know it too. So you simply think to yourself, you've listened, you've now restated it back, they've said, yeah, you've got that, that's correct, uh-huh, clearer than they could have expressed it. Then you ask how they know it. Are the methods they use reliable? Well, how, how do you know that? Well, I sacrificed a goat on the hood of my car. Okay, so that's not a reliable method. And the moment that you say, as in uh, James' talk, the moment that you say there are unreliable ways to come to knowledge, that by definition means that there's a more reliable way to come to knowledge. If you know that sacrificing a goat on the hood of your car is not going to help you design a CPU, then you know there must be a better way. So, you have to focus on epistemology and how someone knows something. And relating to social justice, that's one of the toxins here. If people can deny anything external to stuff, I, I invented my own epistemology. Oh yeah? How's that working out? How's that work, work? Nobody really invents their own epistemology. It's in there. It's, it's, it's a, a form of make-believe land to buttress themselves from the truth. Or as he said in his last talk, James said, reality. 
Okay, so you've listened, used some of the techniques, repeated it back. They said yes. You focus on how they know what they claim to know. Two things that you might not have heard. These are incredibly effective tools. One thing that I love doing is a scale. I ask somebody to place their belief on a scale. Scales are unbelievably powerful, and when you combine it with the next technique, it's, it's amazing what you can do. So here's some examples of scales. You're having a conversation with someone. You listen. You don't ask them for a scale until you've understood what it is that they believe. Now you figure out, well, should trans women be in women's sports or Brexit? It makes no difference what it is. Well, how confident are you in that? On a scale from 1 to 10, how, how sure are you of that belief? Oh, I'm 8. Okay, boom, 8. Now once you have that number, or they can say, well, I don't like that scale. Someone's, very rarely will someone say that, and, and if they do say, okay, how about 1 to 5 or 1 to 100? Some of those people will say it. Very rarely will someone say, I'm not going to put my belief on the scale. So if they don't, you can't use it. But if, if, if they say they don't like the scale, offer them an alternative scale or have them give you a scale. Maybe they want a letter scale. Okay, so now you know how confident somebody is in their beliefs. Once you have this piece of information, the whole world is open up to you. First thing you can do with this is at the end of your conversation, you can again repeat the question and ask them, oh, well, how confident are you now? That will see how effective you are at giving someone the gift of doubt. Pre-test in science, we call that a pre-test and a post-test. Figure out how confident they are in their belief before the conversation. Look at the conversation as a cognitive intervention in some cases, and then post-test that. This will work best if you also do this with your own beliefs. All of this stuff also does this, as I'll talk about later, if you're willing to revise your beliefs. If you're willing to revise your beliefs, there is literally no limit to what you can do. And then the third way you can use scales is you can ask a comparative question. As we write about in the book, if someone says something that you might consider to be bizarre, we live in a patriarchy. Okay, how much of a patriarchy do we live in? On a scale from 1 to 10, if Saudi Arabia is a 9, where's the United States? Now, let's say they have no idea where Saudi Arabia is, what Saudi Arabia is. They have no clue. So, okay, well, what about in the 1950s? If in the 1950s we were an 8, where are we now in 2019? Where are we? Then, they, then you'll know what they say. If they say, well, we're a 9, okay, well, now we, we know what they believe. We don't know their epistemology. We don't know why they believe it, but we have a very good idea of what they believe. Once you have that, you can understand the mechanisms behind their belief formation. So scales are very, very important. But when you combine scales with what I'm going to talk about now, it is a wrecking ball of belief. Disconfirmation questions. Okay. A disconfirmation question, you ask somebody, it's, this, it's so simple. Under what conditions could your belief be wrong? Under what conditions could your belief be wrong? You're not telling them that their belief is wrong. You're asking them what the conditions are. What you don't want to do in these conversations is you don't want to deliver a message. You deliver your message, they deliver their message, then it becomes a message delivery service. Always a mistake. What you do is you say, okay, that's really interesting. Under what conditions would that be wrong? There are only a few things people can say to this. That's the other thing. When you really start having these impossible conversations with people, there are only a few things that they can say. Among the things that they can say is, 
Well, it can't be wrong. Some say, well, my, my belief can't be wrong. Then the response is, oh, that's interesting. Then it's not form, formulated on the basis of evidence. And if they say something like, what do you mean? To formulate a belief on the basis of evidence means, by definition, that there could be some piece of evidence that would come in that would cause you to revise your beliefs. But if there's no evidence that would cause you to revise your beliefs, then your beliefs aren't formulated in the basis of evidence, which is fine. But now you know that their beliefs aren't formulated in the basis of evidence. But more important than that, now they know that their beliefs aren't formulated in the basis of evidence. Maybe they're formulated in the basis of how they feel. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. We've done that with our significant others and partnerships and you know, what food preferences we have. But now it's a way to help people understand if their beliefs are formulated in the base of evidence. Maybe they say to you, well, this is the evidence it would take. This is why you do that. You do that because, just because you think there's a piece of evidence that somebody should have that would cause them to change their mind, that doesn't mean that they're going to buy it. It just means that you think that that's sufficient evidence to change your belief. You need to know from them what's sufficient evidence to change your belief. So it's very, very simple. It's a disconfirmation question. In Greek, if you do this right, in Greek it's called aporia. What, like, kind of like, wow, wonder. And you'll see it. You'll, you'll see these, in these conversations, people will literally, sometimes they'll physically rock back. The trick then, what you do is you don't fill that, that conversational space with, you don't say anything. You just let it simmer. You just let that pause linger. That's the space in people's cognitive, in the way they view reality. It's in that little space that gives people an opportunity to revise their beliefs and think about it. Most people are never asked, under what conditions would you revise your beliefs? They're only asked, well, what's your evidence for that? The, the problem with asking someone, ultimately there's no problem with it, we have to do that at some level, but the problem with asking somebody, what's your evidence for that, is when they listen to themselves, they listen to themselves give their own evidence, which recalibrates their confidence on that scale higher up than it would have been if you didn't ask the question in the first place. So even asking someone to provide evidence for things causes them to become more confident in the belief they already hold. So I almost never ask anybody for evidence unless I'm trying to, in the very early part of the conversation, when I'm trying to understand their epistemology. How did they come to this belief? Okay. When you couple scales and disconfirmation questions, it is incredibly powerful because now you have a way to assess what someone's belief is, how strongly they believe it, under what conditions that belief could be dislodged. Sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes what I'll do is I'll ask somebody a question, never telling them anything, but I'll ask them a question to help facilitate that process of doubt. Here's one of my favorite questions in the context of social justice. This is not my question. This is Eric Weinstein's question. Quote, assume that the fields of gender studies and biology came to disagree on a matter of gender slash sex. Which would you be like, which would, which would you be likely to believe more? I'll repeat that one more time. Assume that the fields of gender studies and biology came to disagree on a matter of gender slash sex. Which would you be likely to believe more? This 25-word question is a litmus test and a bug spray for ideologues. Okay, so now you've listened, you've understood, 
It comes back to you. You hit scales, boom, defeasibility, boom. Now everybody's playing. Now we know what's going on. We hear it. You're not telling anybody anything. The key idea for somebody to change their beliefs, you have to have a non-defensive posture. If they have a defensive posture, the likelihood that someone will revise their beliefs is not only zero, you know for a fact, not only will they not re revise it, is that they actually recalibrate their confidence you know, up and become more confident in whatever belief they started with. Okay. This is tough. I get this. I do this constantly. It's a mistake. I'm trying to weed it out of myself. This technique is called yes and, and it comes from the comedy circuit. So when someone says something to you, the moment that you say but, that denies every single thing that they said that came before that. So we're having a conversation and then I say, yeah, but. So you just invalidated everything someone said. You've also inv invoked a mini defensive posture in them. And that mini defensive posture means they'll be less likely to revise their belief. It's the simplest thing in the world. All you do is you just, and again, I, I, simple, we know what it is, but it's very, very hard to do. Yes, and. Yes, acknowledges what they say, and some additional piece of information you want to consider. Some additional reason, reasoning you want people to think about. Yes, and. All right. Build golden bridges. In hostage negotiation, in common parlance, this is called saving face. You always want to give, this is the other reason that I'm against cancel culture. You always want to give people an opportunity to come to the other side. A golden bridge that enables them to walk across it. This is not a golden bridge. Moron, took you long enough. That's not a golden bridge. Here's a golden bridge. Oh, you know, this is a really complicated issue. And when I started thinking about that, I thought exactly like you did. But now I have this data point, I have this information, and I've revised my beliefs. I changed my mind. Don't make people feel small or petty for revising their beliefs. Belief revision is a key virtue, which I'll talk about in a minute. Don't apologize. Apologize for something you've said or done only if you're actually sorry. Not because you're sorry it hurt someone's feelings or because it offended someone or because you were subjected to personal criticism or because you were bullied. Social justice feeds on capitulation. Never apologize if someone accuses you of offending them. As long as you're criticizing, and this is vital, as long as you're criticizing ideas, ideas, and not immutable properties of people like skin color or height or sex, someone's offense should mean absolutely nothing to you. Never apologize. Don't also don't mumble. Don't mumble. Don't obscure. Don't talk baby talk. Don't tone it down in the defense of reason. Don't apologize. Next, be sincere. In all of your, your conversations, you have to demonstrate parahesia. And one thing I've learned from doing this for so long with so many conversations is people respect you more if you're forthright and not less. People don't like people who prevaricate or people who obfuscate. People like people who are clear and direct and honest. If you speak clearly, 
you will know what you mean and others will know what you mean. Don't equivocate and don't sugarcoat. Speaking in unclear language, which the postmodernists excel at, is a type of self-deception. It can hide the fact that you don't understand or even believe what you're saying. Aristotle wrote that the highest form of friendship is between two virtuous people. Be sincere and engage in parahesia, not just to stop, stop social justice, but do it for yourself. Do it because you can have relationships that matter. If you say what you mean and someone else says what they mean, that's the only way that you can know what somebody actually means. There's no other way. And you can't be friendships. You can't have, develop a relationship with someone if you have no idea what they mean. And we are creating cultures now that make it impossible for anybody to figure out what anybody else means because they won't say what they mean because they're afraid. This is exactly the opposite of how we should live our lives. Finally, and most importantly, be willing to revise your beliefs. This is a core principle underlying this whole thing. Being willing to revise our beliefs prevents us from becoming ideologues, and it prevents us from morphing into the thing that we're fighting. The gateway to belief revision is being willing to say, I don't know. If you're having a conversation with someone, and they say something you don't know, say, I don't know. Thanks. I didn't know that. Interesting. It's not a point of shame or weakness to say that you didn't know something you don't know. In fact, quite the contrary. It means you're unashamed and have the strength to be honest, to speak truth in the face of danger, ridicule, or attempts to embarrass you. Being willing to revise our beliefs and admit our, admit our ignorance, it is a safeguard for parahesia. There is no better way to fight dogmatism than to fight it within ourselves and to be genuinely willing to change our beliefs. I, Helen's talk hit on that as well. The willingness to revise our beliefs and say, I don't know, is the key difference between our army and social justice ideologues. Okay, so there's a lot more techniques that we have in the book, etc., but here are the 10 that I covered very, very briefly. Listen. You want to always listen to what someone says to you, and you want to make sure that you understand what they say. Two, you want to do Rappaport's rules. We did Rappaport's first rule. Never, ever criticize someone until you know exactly. You don't even criticize someone. You criticize their ideas until you understand what that idea is. And also along with that is you never criticize an immutable property of a person. Off limits. Total limits, anybody's idea. Ideas, fair game. Focus on epistemology. How did someone know that? Here's something I didn't mention in the talk, but it's very, very helpful. When you have a conversation with someone, if you focus on a question as opposed to a topic, it will keep the discussion focused. It will also make it so that if somebody else is listening to the topic, uh, to the conversation, they can understand much more readily. So when you talk about epistemology, you don't use the word epistemology ever. <laughs> but when you're, when you're trying to figure out someone's epistemology and asking them how they know what they know, make sure you try to stick to the conversation topic. You can go to other topics. That's fine. That's not a problem. How do you know this? What's the question being examined? We talked about scales, which is very important. Scales will give an idea of what, how confident someone is in their beliefs. When you figure out that, you can figure out successive questions to ask somebody. You can also figure out your effectiveness. Remember what Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is ourselves. You can think that you're really good conversationalists, etc. You can think that people are enjoying the conversation. You can even ask, oh, hey, you know, 
How, you, you can ask a scale about anything. Did you enjoy our conversation? Some people will say yes, no. Um, but the key is, in all of those cases, you need to ask questions, you need to be sincere, ask people to put it on a scale. Immediately, a disconfirmation question the moment that you have a scale. How could that belief be wrong? I'm not saying it is wrong, I'm just curious. What evidence would cause you to change your mind? Then you can talk about the role of evidence in belief formation. Yes, and. Don't say but, because that alienates someone. That invokes a defensive posture. Build golden bridges. Give people a chance to revise their beliefs. Congratulate them for revising their beliefs. We have to make belief revision a virtue, and it's not. And social justice is one of the main causes of this toxin. Don't apologize in the defense of reason, or don't apologize if someone says that they offended you. Be sincere. Always be sincere with people. Don't lie. Don't be a fraud. Be willing to revise your beliefs. All right, those are the ten. If you just do those things, not only will your conversations improve, but the social capital that you have that will come along with those conversations will improve. I wanted to say one more thing before I close. I am confident that sooner or later we will defeat social justice ideology. Part of the reason for my confidence is that social justice does not have a built-in defense mechanism. It has no apologia. Apologia is an ancient Greek word used by a legal defendant who replied with an apologia or a defense. That defense rebutted charges against the accused. For example, in Plato's Apology, Socrates provided an apologia, that is, a defense against the charges that were levied against him, which if you remember from the beginning of the talk, they were corruption of the youth and piety. Christianity has a robust built-in defense in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you and to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Without question, this single passage was the main contributor to Christianity's longevity because it created resilient believers capable of intellectually engaging attacks against its core principles. Not only does social justice have no apologia, it cannot. Its adherents cannot defend its fundamental principles because even doing so would counteract social justice tenets. Here I'm reminded of the British philosopher John Stuart Mill's dictum. He who knows only his side of the case knows very little of that. Social justice ideologues know only their side of the case. They are unable to refute the other side because they don't know what it is. That's why people won't have conversations with us. That's why they won't engage in debates. Whether it's the ancient Greece or biblical times or the Middle Ages or today, to mount a defense against a position, you must know its weaknesses and the primary arguments of its most thoughtful detractors. Social justice ideology has a built-in defensive mechanism to prevent any kind of self-reflection or challenges to its assumption. For example, what role, if any, does biology play in human development? To mount such an ideological defense, one would also need a dialectic, which is another Greek word meaning reason argument and counterargument. This is the Achilles heel of social justice, and it's why and how parahesia will be the implement of its destruction.
Without an apologia, a defense of fundamental principles, social justice will burn itself out. Apologia is the, uh, the, parahesia is the fuel. It's the mechanism that can drive this ideology right out of existence. Social justice ideologues will try to slap you around. Do not bow. Reason and rationality have endurance. They don't evaporate the moment you get slugged, and you will get slugged. Don't be held hostage to the delusions of others. Timidity, ambivalence, and fear will be perceived as weakness. Do not be weak. Stand up and fight. Reason is worth fighting for. Liberalism and enlightenment values, free inquiry, free expression, cognitive liberty, democracy are worth fighting for. It begins with parahesia. It begins with courage. It is speaking truth in the face of danger, and it begins with you. I ask you here today to join us, to not tolerate this nonsense anymore. It has gone on far too long. Thank you.